Hey, hey, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Ridley Speaks podcast. Thank you to my returning listeners. I appreciate you for coming back and thank you for your support. And to any new listeners, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you on this platform. Hey, you can find the Ridley Speak podcast on a lot of different platforms, including Podbean, Google Chrome, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify. Also find the Ridley Speak podcast on YouTube. If you want to check me out on Twitter or Instagram, the handle there is at Ridley Speaks. We have a great show set up for you today with special guest, former police chief, Jesus Eduardo Campa. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome back to Ridley Speaks. I am your host, of course, Carlos Ridley. Today, I am very excited and joined by former chief of police, international speaker and leadership expert, Jesus Eduardo Campa. Mr. Campa, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite and I'm looking forward to a great conversation. I am, too. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So, look, in previous podcasts, I spoke a lot about uh, what is your calling, like what are people passionate about and what what's preventing them from really stepping out and doing what they're re- really passionate about. I also did an episode on leadership and kind of the main topic about that was how are leaders promoting kind of a positive environment, whether it's at work, in their communities or even in their families. You know, do they have a neutral mindset or are they influenced by kind of the the what's popular or what's you know the hot hot item at the time and are they you know are they changing their leadership style based on fear or being labeled and an example of that would be like politics so i'd love to touch base on that later but for those uh, of of our listeners who don't know who you are want to give you just a little bit of time to explain who you are and what you do and then we'll jump into some some content after that the floor is yours Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Well, you know, my name is uh, Jesus Eduardo Campa. As you said, I was born in El Paso, Texas. I was born to a single parent, my mother, who usually worked two to three jobs to keep a roof over our head. My father left when I was about a year and a half. Um, actually, I was raised by my grandmother, you know, fluent in both English and Spanish. I began my law enforcement career in 1994 with the El Paso County Sheriff's Office and 20 years later retired as the chief deputy of the Law Enforcement Bureau. I retired to become a chief of police at Hector County Independent School District, which is in Odessa, Texas. I was there for a while, then went on to an East Texas uh, community to become a chief of police. So there was a very racially motivated uh, um, agency. Uh, I was brought in to bridge the gap and, and fix the culture uh, there in that agency. I was there for three years. And then I uh, left and became the executive director for the Council on Law Enforcement Education and Training for the state of Oklahoma for two years. And after 27 years of law enforcement, I decided that it was time to retire and start doing things that I like doing. You know, I I own two companies. I own America's Best Strategic Security Group, which kind of keeps me in the loop of law enforcement still. Uh, So it's a security consulting and guard service, private investigations, uh, background services, uh, executive executive searches and things like that. And then I've got Leading Through Adversity, which is a company that I formed 
to basically give a platform to to leaders that are out there. You know, um, you, you said something right now that, that that sprung out. You know, our leaders changing and going with what's a popular thing, and that's the problem. Is a lot of leaders uh, right now are out there on their own with their hands tied and don't know which direction to go because they're so afraid of offending somebody or going against what's the you know the politically correct thing to do and stuff. So I get, I try to give a, leaders a platform where they can come and use us as a sounding board throw some ideas off and, and give us the opportunity to help them make the right decision. Uh, I'm married, have three beautiful children. And of course, please don't hold this against me, but we have a gorgeous little Yorkie and that's who the, <laughs> the company is. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Just on the, the leadership standpoint too. Um, and, and I'll kind of ask you this directly specifically in this kind of, we're talking about this election cycle and do, do you feel like it's, it's, tougher uh, for leaders to kind of lead in kind of this political jambalaya that we're currently in? Absolutely. I think it's become really hard for leaders to lead probably within the last 10 years. I know I've been in leadership roles for the last 50, in actual uh, traditional formal leadership roles for the last 13 years. And, you know, the last 10 years, you know, there's been a lot of adversity towards leaders. I mean, it's just, you know, when you're the man at the top or the woman at the top, you know, the world kind of just closes to you and you're basically out there on an island on your own. Because regardless of whether you have a very good supporting staff, such as your employees and stuff like that, you're still the leader of the organization and you're the person who makes the popular and unpopular decisions. And I think that a lot of those decisions are now being driven uh, by what the political popular uh, agenda is, whatever that may be for the day, you know. Sure. Yeah. I've always said, you know, if you try as a leader, if you try to appease everybody, you're still going to leave. So someone's going to be feel like they're left out. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, we have this we have this thing uh, that we always say that if you you know if you want to be a leader, then go out and lead. But if you want to be a leader who wants to be like, then you need to go sell some ice cream. <laughs> That's a great analogy. I mean, leading is hard. You know, it's hard, you know, having to make decisions that, you know, are going to affect, you know, a group or a community or a certain uh, group of people. Uh, and there's no guarantees that, you know, you're going to make the right choices, but you're in that position because someone has said you have the right stuff to, to lead uh, people or groups or whatever, but it's not, it's not easy. It's not a, it's not an easy job. If, if it were, there would be, you know, more leaders and I always look at, you know, there's a difference between, you know, leading and managing. There, there are a lot of managers that are in leadership positions, but that doesn't make them leaders. That's a very, um, precise, uh, group of people. Uh, would you, would you agree with that or you have a different take on that? Oh, no, no, absolutely. I mean, there's a major difference between leaders, leaders and management, management and leaders. You know, it takes a, a leader should be able to manage. But a manager doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to know how to lead, but a leader should know how to manage to lead. And and then also, you know, leadership is basically, you know, it's got a, it, while it has its definition in the in the dictionary, you look it up and it's got a, it's got a definition assigned to it. The biggest issue with leadership and the issue that we're seeing right now is because leadership is basically a perspective of people. Mm-hmm. You know, it depends on on everybody's different ideology of what a leader what a leader is. You know, you saw that in the political spectrum with the presidential election, you know. Sure, sure. So, on on that that whole topic of leadership, and I want to 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 reel back and, you know, you're in 
law enforcement. You're still still connected to it in, in, in a different way, but you were in law enforcement for almost almost 30 years, just since your your professional career. Was that was that some type of calling for you to 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 serve and protect? And, and, you, and did you see law enforcement as a way of doing that? I just I want to try to drill down to see, you know, was that something that you were passionate about? And if so, how did that all formulate in you getting into um, law enforcement? Yeah, absolutely. I think it it was a calling. I mean, um, you know, what happened is uh, I wanted to become a police officer because my uncle, who eventually ended up being my father figure that I looked up to, he was a police officer. And, you know, his morals and ethics were always on the right track of doing the right thing, you know, and I became a police officer because I always wanted to I always thought that I was going to be able to change the world and make a difference, you know, by putting right. the bad guys, putting the guy, bad guys away and and all that good stuff. You know, I grew up in a, in a, in a, in a poverty written neighborhood and stuff like that. And I always thought that, you know, I would like to be the guy, not only the guy that's going to go in there and arrest the bad guys, but I also wanted to be able to provide a safe place for, you know, for kids to play and, and women to walk the streets and men to do what men do. And I, I thought that by becoming a police officer, uh, with the right idea of you know procedural justice of treating people the way i wanted to be treated and moving things forward and having a community uh policing strategy in place was going to be the way to do it so you know as i as i developed my career you know i had a sheriff uh who pinned my badge on me back in 1994 you know he pinned the badge on me and he said you know Jesus, I want you to I want you to take this badge and, and please don't ever do anything to tarnish it and always do the right mm. thing because it's the right thing to do. Sure. So I lived my life that way. And yeah, absolutely. So I, I definitely think it's a calling. I mean, I still miss it. I've only been gone for about a month and a half and I'm sitting there going, God, I'd love to get back into it. The right <laughs> opportunity came up. Right. Right. Well, it's, it's very, you know, very commendable. And, and obviously law enforcement's not a an easy job. Right. Um, you know, staying on the kind of the, the political side, you know, there, you know, a lot of talk about defunding police, you know, has been heavy in this political cycle. What is your take on just, um, just, just the, 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 the communication or the thought process of quote unquote defunding police? How, how disadvantaged, uh, disadvantaged is that, um, you know, what, what, what are your, your views? You don't have to get into any, any deep, but like, what, what would that look like? And, and is it, is it the fact of defunding police or maybe, uh, relooking at the curriculum in which police officers are trained would be more beneficial than quote unquote defunding? Well, you know, for anybody out there who doesn't, who thinks that this defunding police movement is something new, it really isn't. I mean, if you actually go back to this mid sixties, early seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I just watched the movie the other day, um, uh, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah. Uh, they're talking about defunding the policing way back then during the Black Panther era. And you saw the different minority groups come together. And I think right now what politicians are doing is they're, they're using the word defunding as a, as the political word of the day because it's sure. cool and it's going to help get them elected in some areas. Right. But what they're really talking about in reality, when you sit there and you look at it, what they're really talking about doing is reallocating. So what the first thing they need to do is stop using the wrong word. (laughs) You know, they keep saying, we're going to defund you. No, you're not. You're going to reallocate funds. And and here's the the issue with that. I'm going to use one of my agencies uh, as an example. You know, back in the day, we were one of the first agencies that got all of our peace officers, mental officer, mental Mental peace officer certified. We put them through a 
uh, an 80 hour course to make them mental peace officers. This way they would know how to handle and deal with people who are having, uh, mental episodes, mental health episodes, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, there was no funding for that. There was no funding that was generated for that. There wasn't any funding. We didn't go to commissioner's court and ask for funding for that. This was something that came from our internal budget, right? right. So when, when you go off and you say, well, we're going to remove all the mental health, uh, funding we gave you. Uh, okay. What, what, which, which part was that? Because you never gave us any, so what do you do? <laughs> you know, and they're like, you know, so and then there's certain services, you know, for instance, LAPD. You know, let's use LAPD for an instance, you know, sure. or even, you know, they they have they have psychiatrists, they have a mental health uh, specialists that ride with them, have been doing so since the 90s, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we still had issues back there now and out in LA. So what they're doing now is they're just basically removing those mental health experts from the police department and creating. What they call citizens, citizen, a citizens protection uh, agency, a CPA. Okay. Now the thing is, okay, so basically what you did is you didn't defund it. What you did is you took that, that money that you had allocated to that agency for the salary of that person and whatever tools that they use, and you've reallocated them to this new agency. So you didn't defund anything. You just reallocate. It's reallocating, right? Yes, right, it's reallocating. Sure. Yet the same thing happens is that you're still having both individuals show up together. They're just not showing up in the same in the same unit or the same uniform or anything like that. Okay. So and, and that's really what they're talking about when you're talking about defunding. It's just everybody gets in an uproar and everybody gets into a panic. Now, don't get me wrong. There has been some agencies that have lost their funding because, like I said, in my previous agency, when we did that with all of our all of our officers, we didn't have any funding. So you take Austin PD, for example. Now they 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 defunded them. They took about they cut them about I think it was like four million dollars that they took from their budget. And four million dollars is a lot of money. Sure. You know, so they took a lot of the money there, and apparently that money, you know, there was money set aside for a training uh, to provide more uh, officers on the street and do this and this and that. Now that was a, a that was some kind of defunding if you really want to talk about it, but they really didn't defund them. They just reallocated those funds to create another agency. So sure, sure. You know that's the biggest issue. I think people need to understand is that there's really a big difference. There's really not defunding going on because I have yet to see any agency be defunded. Sure, I've seen an agency have its funding cut, and then I've seen agencies have their funding reallocated. Yeah. Yeah, and it, you know, for me, it's like you know, if, if since I, I have someone that's been in law enforcement for a long time, that's always a question to kind of get it from the horse's mouth about what does that really mean? Is it really defunding, or as you said, is it really more of allocation, reallocation of funds to certain areas or certain groups? Yeah, yeah, and and I think that that they need to make that clear. But you know, it, it sounds a lot better, and we're able to sell more newspapers and get more people to watch right. the news when you when you when you when you strike panic into a person instead of just telling them the truth. You know, and that's sure, one of the sure. bad things that's gotten into society lately. Sure, agreed. Yeah, you know, and, and it's kind of going back, and we, I kind of veered off just a little bit into that. But you know, I wanted to to kind of go back to the calling, and and we spoke about this earlier in just terms of some parallels, just with us in general. You know, we're both men of color. I think we're both roughly around the same age. Uh, we both grew up in um, uh, poor conditions. Uh, you know, single family home, single. You know, no dad in the home, mother. You know playing mother, father, and everything else, uh, <laughs> you know, to, yeah, to, to raise exactly. us. I know you mentioned, you know, your, your grandmother, uh, raised you, your mom worked a lot. So I see a lot of parallels in our lives, uh, to this point, but you know, one thing that I've always preached whenever I've had the opportunity specifically, uh, on my podcast is I never let 
those circumstances keep me down or like predict my future. Right. And I grew up in Southern California. And for me, the, you know, the life expectancy uh, rate then was like 22 year old, 22 years for an African-American male. And so I felt like, Hey, once I turned 22, my life kind of started over, (laughs) so to speak. And so, uh, I was able to, you know, not think about, you know, all the different things that were negative or the adversity that I might see uh, as a youth and coming up, but like project that to positivity and going out and, you know, getting my education and things like that. I know that you're working on a PhD. Um, same, same with myself, you know, I, I kind of put myself through school, through, uh, sports with scholarships, uh, got a master's degree. I'm also currently working on a PhD. It feels like it's taken forever, uh, to get done, but it's like, you know, the, the way that you can kind of pull yourself out of something with, mm-hmm. with less resources than, than, you know, most people might have, I think it's a testament to, to your hard work. And I know you've, you've mentioned, you know, it was instilled in you, you know, have a hard, uh, very hard, uh, work ethic, you know, through your family. And, you know, I just, I just, when I see other people, uh, specifically in this conversation, there's two men of color that, uh, the odds were against us, right? The odds were against us yeah. that we would like come out of that or veer into a different arena, right? Uh, maybe an arena of, of crime and drugs and, and all the negative stuff. But it just goes to show you that if you have, you know, powerful people in your family, such as in your case, your grandmother, your mother, in my case, my mother, it's like you can still accomplish things you want to accomplish in life. You don't have to be, you know, lost in the wilderness or, you know, led out into areas of distress. You can bring yourself up. Uh, you just have to have the mindset, one, and the ability. And so when I look at you and I look at what you've done, I've looked at a lot of the things that you're involved with. I mean, you're, you're a business owner. You have a lot of things going on. And if someone was to say this, you know, 45 years ago, hey, would Jesus be where he is today just based on how you grew up? They might have said no, but look at you. Oh, they would have said no. <laughs> same, same with me. Um, so I, I really, really respect, um, you know, what you've done in your life and the things that you continue to do now to promote people, communities, et cetera. I did, however, wanted to ask you, uh, you know, to maybe go a little bit more into kind of your leading through adversity, but also wanted to ask you, because I was looking through a lot of your platforms and I wanted you to, to possibly explain what no colors, no labels mean. If you go into oh, that for a little bit. Absolutely. So, you know, so here's the deal going back onto what you were saying, you know, um, yeah, actually, I had very little support from my family back in the day. You know, I had uh, my mom supported me, my grandmother and an aunt and uncle did. Uh, but the rest of my family, aunts, uncles, cousins, you know, they were, you know, they were, they were successful. They were married. You know, they had, they, they were the, you know, they were the traditional family. They were going to good schools, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, I, I was once said that somebody said, an uncle of mine once told me that, you know, hey, as long as I don't end up doing drugs or behind prison, that's good enough. And as long as I got a good job, you know, at McDonald's as a manager or something, he'd be very proud of me. And I was like, wow, really? That's a great way to motivate a person, a young person's <laughs> mindset, you know? Right. Uh, Luckily, luckily, I didn't let that affect me, and I decided that I was going to move forward. And you're right, you know, uh, adversity is all around us, and and that's that's the whole thing is you know, throw leading through adversity. That's why I started it is because 
my life has been just one adversity after another, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm not going to get on the violin and start playing woe sure. is me because sure. there's been a lot of people who have had worse things that happened to me because right. when you compare the things that have happened to me to some of the things that have happened to other people. It's like, whoa, really? Yeah. <laughs> you have no reason to cry, right? Sure. So that's what we created leading through adversity was just that, you know, you should never give up. You know, you have a vision. It's your vision. Don't let anybody define who you are. You mm. define who you are. It's your vision. It was given to you. You make it happen. Shut out the noise. Don't listen to the haters. You keep moving forward. And that's what leading through adversity is for. You know, it's for people who, who, who just have a vision and want to keep moving forward. Now, I've always considered myself a visionary you know, in, in the last 27 years that I've been in law enforcement. I think that's been one of my problems in law enforcement is that like I said earlier, I'm always told that I'm the right guy at the wrong time, you know? So <laughs> when I was brought into uh, that, uh, that community in East Texas where I became the chief of police, my orders from a very progressive mayor and a very progressive city council was to, um, bring the racial division in that community to a halt. You know, there was okay. a big okay. racial issue between the African-Americans and, and, and the Hispanics against the Caucasians and the whites and the police department and things like that. The community where I was a, a police chief of was basically at one time a center point hotbed for slavery. Hmm. So, um, you know, there was slaves had been sold there. Slaves had been punished there. And, and, and uh, the great Martin Luther King and uh, I always forget the individual's name, but there there was a black, uh, a black railroad that used to run through through the streets of Marshall, Texas. Okay. And uh, so when I was brought in, they asked me to fix the racial division and the gap. And I went in there and I started looking around and I created a program called No Colors, No Labels. Basically, the initiative was to help was to try to remove the preconceived notion that the police were racially motivated by trying to bridge the gap between the police department and and uh, the community. Now, here's the here's the hard part. OK, so my agency was about 96 percent Caucasian uh, older officers and mm-hmm. even younger some younger officers uh, who had the mindset that. You know, this is the way policing is done. You know, it wasn't the right mindset. Sure, We're still sure. working off of a 20th century policing mindset instead of a 21st century. Right. So here comes along. I always joked about it. I said, here comes this, you know, that when they hired me, they, they couldn't hire another Caucasian and they weren't going to hire an African American. So they settled for this little short caramel Mexican dude, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I came in and my orders were to fix it. So I created that program. And we started doing a lot of community outreach. That's one of the things that's my 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 um, forte is dealing with the community and bringing them together. Sure. And I went yeah. out and I walked the streets, grassroots, and I was basically, to be quite honest with you, doing it by myself because I couldn't get the officers inside the agency to bite. Right. You know, and, and, and a lot of people questioned my leadership because they're like, well, you can't get these guys to bite. Well, it's kind of hard to get these people to bite when they've been inbreded to have these racial beliefs and disconnects on how things should run. You know, right. I can't change a culture overnight. So, you know, we started going out there and little by little, we started getting one officer, then two officers and three officers and four officers to join the movement. And that's how that no colors, no label started. And basically what we did is we went out. And we met with the community. We went to areas where the police would never go. You know, we, we, we mm-hmm. stopped, we stopped. I implemented what we call CompStat and predictive policing, which allowed us to stop over policing the minority neighborhoods and actually attack crime as where it's happening is as opposed to attacking it where traditionally right. you think it happens. Right. So we actually started reducing crime by 20% by doing that. 
And then what we started doing is I created a cultural awareness meals. I had developed a very good partnership with the business people of the community. And what we did is every month, like for instance, the very first cultural awareness meal we did was a um, black, black, black meal, African American black uh, meal awareness. And what we did is we brought in the traditional uh, African American food, such as the neck bones and the lizards and the chicken and all that sure, stuff. Sure. Which, by God, was the best food <laughs> ever, man. I swear. And, and uh, you know, and uh, so we brought that in, and then we brought in professors from around the country and stuff to to talk about why, you know, basically the food that you all ate was basically survival food, you know, which connected to right, my right. heritage, you know, like. Yeah, a lot of people don't know the reason they call Hispanics or Mexican beaners is because we eat a lot of beans, but that's where we divide, that's where we used to get our protein from because we couldn't sure. kill the cow because we right. didn't have any milk. So we, you know, so yeah. we started learning a whole lot. And then what we did is the following month and we did one for the Hispanics and the following month, one for Asians and then the Caucasians and so and so. And what we started to find out is that when you break bread and you start explaining cultural differences, you start to find out that there really isn't a lot of cultural differences. There's a lot of cultural likenesses. Right. And you start realizing that we have more in common than we thought we did. And we start bridging that gap. And through that, all of a sudden, one of the greatest things that I ever saw was we had a very rich, wealthy individual white man who really disliked the NAACP leader in that area. Mm -hmm. She was an older black woman. And after the fourth meal, they were sitting side by side with each other, laughing, eating, breaking bread and talking. And everyone's like, hell just froze over. <laughs> and they're like, holy smokes, you know what the hell you're doing. And I said, well, apparently not according to my officers because I can't get them to change and bite into this, you know. Sure. But the community was buying it. And that's who right, I was hired right. to, to, to bridge that gap with, the community. Now, I had these men I had to lead. There was some of them that were willing to come. But kind of like what you said, a lot of them were afraid because the popular kids or the politically um, connected kids mm -hmm. didn't want to come on board, you know. Right. So through No Colors, No Labels, we also created the Cool Cops Ice Cream Truck, which was a partnership between Blue Bell Ice Cream and my agency. And I got them to provide us all the ice cream. We, we decked out an old ambulance, turned it into an ice cream truck, and it would play the song Bad Boys, What You're Going to Do When the <laughs> And then awesome. the, the response to that, I changed it. I'm just glad Inner Circle never sued me because it was <laughs> going to do when they come for you, eat ice cream, you know. Right, and, and eat ice cream party. Yeah, yeah. Ice, yeah, yeah. Ice cream. <laughs> so we went there, and, and the community loved it, man. You know, and it was so awesome, you know. And but but the majority of the officers, you know, just try to change that culture. Just they refused to come along. They didn't want to. Every, I mean, they found every excuse, and they came after me, you know, hard. I mean, everything that I did, even if I breathed wrong, you know, they accused me of everything just because they didn't want to see that cultural shift change, which was ridiculous, you know. Right, right. Um, and, 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 um, you know, in 2017, because of the no colors, no labels initiative, you know, I was awarded the, uh, 2017 Martin Luther King NAACP humanitarian of the year award for, for bridging those gaps, bringing the crime rate down all the community programs that we did. And, you know, when I left after three years there, I was kind of devastated because I couldn't understand how something that was so positive, something that was so right when we shifted the community's mentality and uh perception of the police that the police themselves didn't want to switch right you know and it was funny i mean you know so 
But that's what No Colors, No Labels did. It was basically a, a, a tool that was designed to, to bring people together, and I'm very proud to say that it did. And unfortunately, when I left, the program died, and that community is back to just being the community it always has been. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's sad. That's sad that, 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 uh, you know, they regress back into kind of old habits. You know, yep. it, it, something that you said earlier about the NAACP leader, uh, and, uh, the other gentleman, you know, mm-hmm. basically on, on opposite sides. It's amazing what happens when human beings sit down and just listen, right? Yep. Oh yeah. Just, just, just to listen. Cause at the end of the day, you know, we have, you know, we're, we're, we're separated by race because that's what we call race. We, we were, you know, you're black, you're Hispanic, you're white, you're this, you're that. When we're all really just human beings exactly. with, with different pigmentation, (laughs) right? If you want to get down to the core of it, but it's amazing how, if you just listen to people, if you just stop for a second and get out of your own way and listen to what either people are dealing with, dealing with, uh, what they've dealt with and just empathize and just listen. It's amazing how much can get done and how people can come together. Um, you know, sitting down, bake, breaking bread is one of those things that, uh, brings people together. Uh, you're in Texas, so sports, football, things like that bring people mm-hmm. together. There's, there seems to be no, no color, no race when we're doing certain things. You know, I always reckon back to, you know, we're the nicest nation in the world during Christmas time. <laughs> right. And, and it's, it's just funny. It's like, why can't it be Christmas time, you know, 11, 12 months instead of just one month? I'm like, we, we can, we turn it off, turn it on. But I digress. I really appreciate, you know, you really digging deep, uh, and, and giving us some, some insight on, you know, leading through adversity. Like you said, adversity is always going to be around us is how we deal with it. And do we deal with it powerfully? And then the no colors, no labels. I was really interested in hearing more about that. And I hope our listeners really, um, paid attention. And, you know, those are types of things that when we talk about callings, like that people want to do, right? But they don't know how to get started, you know, and I've always lent out my hand to say, Hey, if you're interested in doing things or getting things started, uh, whether it's foundations or businesses or whatever, you know, I'm there to, to, to help. And I'm sure you do that as well, uh, around the communities and people that you're around. So going back, I just want to commend you for, for your work and these different, uh, opportunities that you find yourself in that you've made positive impact. Um, but hey, I want to make sure that, uh, if people are interested in you, uh, any of the services you provide, any of the platforms you're on socially, I want to give you this chance, this platform to let everybody know where they can, to, can get in touch with you or the platforms you're on. Uh, so you have the floor for that. Well, awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. So you can definitely find me, you know, if you want to find out more about me. You know, bring me on as a keynote speaker or talk about adversity. You can always hit me up at jesusericampa.com. That's jesusericampa.com. Or you can visit our website at leading through it, our other website at leading through adversity, uh, and see our services that we provide for developing future leaders and developing the leaders of tomorrow today and all the strategic planning and stuff that we do through leading through adversity. So that's leading through adversity.com. And of course, I want to really plug the, uh, our, our Instagram that we just started and it's, and it's growing little by little, but you know, we really want people to come out to leading underscore through underscore adversity underscore there on Instagram. Give us a follow. Give us a like. We would really appreciate it. We're trying to grow that 
Uh, we're in the works of creating our YouTube channel, you know, also our podcast leading through adversity. You know, if you all would take a listen to that, we have some really good guests and stuff like that. So yeah, great uh, stuff that, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you. Thank you. And then, uh, you know, just want to pitch my book. I've got a book that's coming out July 4th, which I the reason it's, it's, it's ready to go and it should have been out sooner. Unfortunately, uh, I wanted to do it. Uh, I want to launch it out on July 4th because that's kind of like in the, well, that is independence day, but it's also mm-hmm. my independence day. And, and that's the day the book's going to come out. And, where I talk about – it's called Unmasking Leadership, and I talk about all the issues that people are afraid to talk about when it comes to leadership, you know, and that's you know having your hands tied by those that, that hired you to do the job. Sure. Perfect. Hey, yeah. and I, I also have a lot of listeners uh, on LinkedIn. What is your uh, – just to make sure that people that hear this can find you on LinkedIn as well. What's your LinkedIn? Yeah, handle? absolutely. So if you just go to LinkedIn and look for uh, Jesus Campa. That would be me, and uh, you'll see a you'll see a St. Petersburg address on there. I need to change that. I haven't lived in St. Petersburg anymore. <laughs> but uh, it's Jesus Campa, uh, Executive Vice President of Security and Safety. That's me. Give me a like. Add me onto your network. I'd love to connect. And uh, absolutely, thank you. Perfect. Perfect. Well, again, thank you for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Had a great time. I want to thank my listeners for listening to the Ridley Speak podcast. Please. Check out Mr. Kampa, okay? He is doing great work, um, has a lot of resources. So if you need anything that he has, please check him out. Well, again, that is all the time we have. Great show. Thank you for listening in. Please come back to the Ridley Speak podcast. And like a thief in the night, I'm out. Mm-hmm.